Hey, Donna. Thank you for spending it with us. That's really awesome. Some people skip church on their birthday. Not at this church. It's a good place to be. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to look around because uh, growth groups do start today. I want to make sure my growth group is here. Because um, I, I do believe that that, that passage in Hebrews, when it talks about not forsaking the gathering, that it's our gathering where we stir up love and good works and challenge each other. And I love being able to, to sit down with, with some of you folks and be challenged and challenge you and kind of dig in deeper to the things of the Word of God. So uh, I usually, when I send my message out, call my group the A-team, but... Um, I think this time I'll call you the no excuses group. Like we're here, we're ready to go, no excuses. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, and a message entitled Faith Under Fire. Before I start, that last song, if I could envision this church singing worship and the things that they were going through, that's like the perfect song to lead us into this. So thank you for that, guys. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. If you're having trouble finding it, it is right after 1 Thessalonians. Um, In God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Righteous are your ways. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today through your word, uh, that as you did in the days of this letter, Lord, you would grow our church both in faith and in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a short little letter uh, that we're starting today. And I always struggle when I look at these because it was read to the church in one reading, uh, as you would read a letter. And it's tempting for me. Sometimes I think maybe we should teach the whole letter this week and then maybe break it down some. Um, I like the breaking it down so we don't miss. You know, if I try to do um, kind of a forest approach rather than the tree, sometimes we miss important things. I think last week was an example of that. It seemed like it was just kind of the ending of the book. And um, that ending of the book probably challenged me more than uh, the leading up to portions. So uh, I've kind of broken it up, hopefully into three different um, messages. And this letter was, was written probably within a year of his first letter that he wrote to this church. If you've been with us throughout this, uh, you probably know the Apostle Paul's story. But if you don't or you're new or 
You only listen sometimes when I talk. Um, I want you to hear it in his own words, what, what Paul says about himself. And part of why I'm doing this is because I know that there are some in here that get reminded constantly from our enemy of who they once were, that they no longer are because they're a new creation in Christ. At that moment of justification, you're made a new creation. You're no longer who you are. So this is what the Apostle Paul said of himself. I was formerly, no longer, but formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So before Paul became a new creation in Christ, he went by the name of Saul of Tarsus. He was a religious leader, so he wasn't um, looked down upon by any means. He was a man of status. He was a Pharisee, uh, most likely a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a, a council of Jewish rabbis, would, would have been the equivalent of the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. And in the book of Acts, we kind of get a snapshot of Paul's past and his life. Um, one of the first things that we see was that he was a witness to and consented to the death of Stephen, the first martyr for his faith in Christ. Then we read further on in Acts chapter 8, it says Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Some of you may look back at your life before you were saved and, and think of things you said to mock people that you work with or people in your family or maybe the very first person that was praying for your salvation. And Paul was so much worse. Paul would come into a gathering like this of Christians in a home and, and drag people off, it says. He made havoc. Um, the next chapter, chapter 9, says, Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, the way those that were followers of Jesus, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was basically looking for arrest warrants for any Christian, that he could drag them in and bring them prisoner to Jerusalem. Now, if you read through Acts chapter 9, and I won't do that this morning, but the very next verse on this tells us that Paul had an encounter with Jesus. Encounter is not the right word. Um, Saul of Tarsus met Jesus. Saul of Tarsus met Jesus, and we read there that he called him Lord, and that he believed he was the Messiah. And right after he called Jesus Lord, if you read that, uh, maybe later today, his very next question was, and I'll, I'll quote him here, Lord, what do you want me to do? What, what a radical change of life. And, and that's how Paul lived the rest of his life. From that moment on, when he was saved in Jesus Christ, everything changed. And that's really what it means for us. When we call Jesus Lord, we're saying that he is now the boss of our lives and what he says goes. It's not a part of our life. He's not a piece of our life. He's not a, a guiding force. He's Lord of our lives. When Paul writes this letter 
to the Thessalonians. He's with two guys, uh, as we read in our greetings, Sylvanus, which uh, is also called Silas in different places in the New Testament, and a young man named Timothy. And the church in Thessalonica knew these two guys, who was with Paul. Um, Silas was with Paul on a second missionary journey. Silas was with Paul, actually, when they got beaten and they were thrown into the jail in Philippi. You guys remember that story of the jail shaking and the Philippian jailer getting saved. And it's, it's pretty amazing. We just kind of read through this greeting, but when you look at these men's lives and you think about the miracle that it took for them to be together, first of all, for them each to be saved, just Saul of Tarsus, to have a life-changing um, encounter, there's that word again, with Jesus, but also Timothy, and, and also Silas. And, and really, one of the things I love about growth groups is we kind of get to know each other's stories. Because as I look around this room, there is miracle after miracle after miracle that, not just that Jesus picked you guys, I mean, come on, but that he saved you and that he changed you, and then he brought you together with the person that's sitting next to you and the person that's sitting next to them, and that you three or four, or, or that combination that God brought together for his purpose in this place at this time, really is miraculous. And, and that's something I encourage you guys to do is, Lord, why here, why now, what do you have for me? Or what more do you have for me? So these guys are together. The church knew them. The church knew that they were the real deal because they had been among them and that they cared about him deeply. Young Timothy was previously sent to this church by Paul to check on the church. You guys remember his story? He was there on a second missionary journey for just three Sabbaths, and he was run out of town because of persecution, and he sent Timothy back to check on them, um, maybe hand-carried that first letter. We don't know, but when he came back, he brought an excellent report the first time, and Paul wrote a letter, but then that letter was delivered either by Timothy or maybe another missionary. And then someone came back and kind of gave Paul an update on this church. And that prompted this letter, written six months to a year after. Um, Paul at the time was in the city of Corinth, where we know he was there for 18 months to two years, somewhere in that range. And, and some things were brought to Paul's attention about this church, and, and he addressed here, hence our second letter to the Thessalonians. Again, it's only three chapters long. The first chapter is all about encouragement to this church that's being persecuted. The persecution didn't end when Paul left. That's why it was so glorious when he got this good report that they were doing well. The second chapter kind of the reason why I didn't tackle it all at once or do chapters one and two is the second chapter really clarifies some things about the second coming of Jesus. And I wanted to be able to take time to uh, focus on just that. There appears to have been some kind of a rumor um, or the result of something that Paul either said or did that caused some confusion, caused some to think that Jesus may have already returned at this point in time, and they missed it. So Paul straightens that out. Paul assures them that it will be an event that can't be missed. And then finally, chapter 3, Paul really addresses how we live now, believing in the imminent return of Christ. 
Sometimes we look back at the scriptures and, and it seems as though Paul was convinced, right? Those of us that remain when Jesus comes back and counted himself in that group that he believed he would still be here and um, he wasn't. But we're, we're urged throughout the scriptures to believe that, to believe that it could be this day that Jesus returns. But in chapter three, we see um, that there was a, almost a problem with that there. We see it in the church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts too, where everybody's selling everything, everybody's gathered, and they're just kind of standing around waiting on Jesus. And in chapter three, Paul addresses, yeah, he's coming back and it could be any time. And we live in anticipation of that, but we also live and plan and prepare and work as if it might not be in our lifetime. So, so the anticipation of Jesus' return, chapter 3 in a nutshell, doesn't give you an excuse to just leech off the church or leech off anyone else and not work or, or be busy about the Lord's business while we're waiting. So begin again. Um, verse 1, we'll kind of break it down a little bit. Again, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What I love about that, not to get off on a tangent, but the language there indicates unity. Like that God and Jesus are one, because you know, they are. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Clarity. One essence, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one essence, three persons, okay? The simplicity of this greeting, if you flip through maybe later today and look at Romans, look at Ephesians, look at Philippians, look at some of the different letters that Paul wrote, this one by comparison is pretty simple. Um, All of his other letters are Paul, an apostle by the will of Jesus Christ, or Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. There is some defense or reinforcement of his apostolic authority. And, and usually it's because there's issues or problems in this church that he's trying to address. But Paul didn't have to do any of that with these guys. He loved them. They loved Paul. He had their, their respect. They were grateful for his ministry among them. He was also very aware of their circumstances. And, and I believe that Paul practiced what he preached. You guys remember last week as we finished his first letter to them, he said to them in, in verse 14 of chapter 5, we exhort you, brethren, to warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. Now, this was not an unruly church that Paul was writing to. He wasn't writing to address a bunch of issues and problems or sin in the camp. He, they were getting beat up. You know, they were being persecuted. They were enduring, but they were under attack. They were being persecuted. Um, but even in his greeting here, Paul is, is comforting them. His intent is to comfort. And then in verse 3, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren. Like, we're, we've got a duty or an obligation. It's almost, as I'm playing this out in my mind, it's almost like Paul sent the first letter, and you know he praised this church a lot in that first letter, and it was almost like the return message or the return report was, they were saying, oh, Paul, 
you know, that, that's too much, or you don't need to do that. And Paul says, no, we're bound to do that. You know, we're obligated to do that with, with how you guys are doing. We, we thank God for you guys. It's fitting that we would do this. It's right. And he tells this, um, two things about this church here. It's fitting because, he says, here's why it's fitting. Your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds towards the other. So their faith is explosive. When you, when you look at the meaning of these words, it grows exceedingly, not normal, not on pace with other churches, not on pace with other church plants that Paul was involved in, but beyond all that, and it's fitting because the love of every single one of them abounds towards each other. Jesus says that's how the world, those that aren't yet saved, those that are not of our faith, that's how they'll know that we're the real deal. That's how they'll know that we're followers of his for our love for one another. There's another passage that I think is interesting that's written to or about those who profess to love God, say they love God, say they follow God, but don't fellowship with other Christians. Or I love God, but the people. 1 John 4, 20, I think this is an important verse for us all to know, all to keep in the back front of our minds and in the center of our hearts. If someone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, the word of God says he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hasn't seen? How, how can we, in our limited capacity, say I love God who I've never seen, I have faith that he exists if I can't love those that I live with here that I can see? I, Here's a side note I encourage you growth groups to get into. It's probably not on your question sheet, but you know, we, we are image bearers of God. We're created in his image. We're designed for relationship, designed for one primary relationship, being with him. You know, and, and if, if that isn't taking place, or if that's not in its right place, all of these other relationships are going to be messed up too. But we're told this is a sign. This is one of the ways you can know. One of the ways you can challenge yourself if, if you're lacking love for a brother or you hate. Take this before the Lord. But this church, and, and my prayer is this church, didn't have these problems that First John talks about. Uh, they loved each other. And their love was abounding for one another. Their faith was explosive. And because of those two things, Paul in verse 4 says, we boast of you. We, we brag about you guys. Even though that might not be fitting, or, or as, as the pastor of the church planner there, that might not normally be the case or justified. But Paul's saying, I'm going to take that liberty when it comes to you guys. We boast of you among the churches of God for all your patience and faith in all these terrible circumstances, right? In your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, 
which the fact that this is happening, the fact that, let me back up, your patience, you're going to have to help me back up, I guess. Now, there we go. Your patience and faith in all your tribulations, persecutions and tribulations, that fact is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Easy peasy, right? Not if you're like me. I I mean, honestly, this is a good church and, and their faith is abounding, exploding. Their love is growing for one another. And, and on the surface, I'm challenged by stuff like this. You know, and, and maybe you are too. I mean, these are the good guys, right? It's not the church in Corinth or it's not um, some of these different churches where there's all kinds of problems, but they're, they're the good guys. They're doing church the right way. The word of God is sounding forth from them. You remember Paul was driven out of town after just a couple of weeks because of persecution, and that persecution has continued, and it sounds like it's intense. The word says that they're suffering, yet they're growing in their faith, and and they're not questioning their faith. so easy to happen to us, right? Things start to go wrong, and we start to doubt or question or get bitter. Paul tells us that they're suffering and growing. They're not fighting. They're not blaming. They're not backbiting. They're abounding or or growing exceedingly in their love for one another. I personally don't think that the church in America knows about suffering. We've heard about it. Maybe in the last couple of years, um, we've seen hints of it, but no real enforcement or true persecution as a result of it. But when the slightest hint of it occurs to either an individual Christian or a church, we respond with shock and horror like somebody just pulled the rug out from under us. Like we can't believe it. I'll tell you something else. When you look throughout history of the church, I'm not sure that persecution has ever been a bad thing for the church. Certainly tough to endure, not pleasant to be in. But when you look at the results of persecution, it's generally what we see in this church. Growth and unity and total reliance on God. Church in China, I would say, is stronger than the church in America as a result of persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. So if we're not yet experiencing it, we will. In 1 Peter, we're told that we shouldn't be shocked by it or even think that it's strange to be persecuted. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in the 12th verse, it says, Beloved, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, 
that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. So Paul's saying, I wouldn't normally do this, but we boast about you guys. We take that liberty to brag about you and, and your faith in the middle of persecutions, in the middle of tribulations, and your response in the midst of that as a testimony or as manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you'd be counted worthy of the kingdom of God through your suffering. And I also think we have a tendency, or maybe it's just me, to think that judgment is just for bad people, right? That's, that's certainly justice, and he'll hit on that in a minute. But we think judgment should only be for the bad guys, not the good guys. These, these are the good guys. They're doing what they need to do. But Peter tells us that judgment starts in the house of God. And, and Paul says, you're going through this, gang, so that there's purpose in it. God's allowing it for a reason, so that you will be counted worthy. That that judgment is like a refining fire in our lives. Fire is often used to purify things, sterilize things, right? If I'm doing self-surgery and uh, I want to sterilize a needle or something or, or a knife, I'll put it under fire. Um, but metals, particularly back here, if they were going to purify gold or purify silver, they, they melt it down and scrape the impurities off the top to remove the dross. And Paul's saying, that's what's happening here, church. I know it's hard, and you're doing so well, but your perseverance is a testimony both to you and everyone else that's seeing it of God's righteousness, because justice is coming, he says. When we get to verse 6, he says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, it's coming. And to give you who are troubled rest. We can look forward to that. With us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he talks about judgment, and certainly that starts with the house of the Lord, but vengeance is coming, and vengeance belongs to our king, not to us. When we look at that word, it's a compound word that makes up the word vengeance. When we think of vengeance today, it's... Uh, payback or it's with some anger and wrath and and this word is not at all that but it's like pure perfect and pure justice being poured out in finality so he will give us rest when jesus comes back and the vengeance that he takes won't be on us right the vengeance that he takes will be on those who don't know god and then check out this qualifier that he adds at the end of this verse on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if vengeance is going to be poured out on those who don't obey the gospel, what's the gospel? You know, are we sure that we know 
what the gospel is. Paul tells us in another place in 1 Corinthians, pretty simply, in a couple of verses, he says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, friends. Right there in two verses. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. So obeying the gospel, this is what we need to know. Obeying the gospel starts with responding to the gospel. Like, like, like Paul, like Saul of Tarsus on that road to Damascus. Not just believing that Jesus existed. Right? Not just believing that he came, that a Jew was persecuted and hung on a cross and died, but believing in Jesus. So it's the difference between believing that Jesus came and believing in Jesus. This is on your homework, okay, for a discussion. Um, the difference between believing that Jesus Christ was born, lived on the earth, died on a cross, and believing in Jesus Christ and placing our faith and trust in him for salvation. Belief in includes not just the existence of Jesus, but also the virgin birth, the sinless life, the substitutionary death for me personally. Right? That's where belief in, that this was for me, that it applies to me. The resurrection of the dead, um, saving me from eternity, eternal separation from God. And Paul's getting to that next. Check out verse 9. He says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I, I was going to look something up, but I didn't want to draw your attention to anything in particular. But it does seem to me that every couple of years, there's a new book or a new podcast or a new pastor with some kind of platform that he's been given that makes the claim that there is no hell. And, and actually, there's an old heresy that's been around for a long time that's growing again in popularity. And, and that's what's known theologically as annihilationism. We, you can think of the word annihilated. But it's annihilationism, and that's the belief that unbelievers, or, or the verse before this, what he says about those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they may be punished, and they may even go to a place called hell, but only for a little while. They'll only be punished for a little while, and then they'll be annihilated, or they'll just become nothing. And there's, there's all kinds of various forms of that, the belief that when we die, we are just dust, that our mind, our, our soul, our consciousness, all of it just simply ceases to exist. And, and more popular is that the good people go to heaven and the bad or the really super bad people go to hell for a while to be punished, but then after a while, they're just done. They're just nothing. The problem with that Annihilationism is that it's just not true. 
It's a lie. It's a lie intended, I think, by our enemy to give security. That all of this doesn't really matter so much. And, and Paul tells us here that they will be punished with everlasting, never-ending, never-annihilated destruction. That that will continue on forever. But notice also what he says here, what, what truly makes hell hell is the everlasting separation from the presence of the Lord. Even those that are of the world and don't believe God don't, don't realize or recognize the benefit that they have now being in the presence of God, being in the presence of you, the temples of the Holy Spirit. Again, we're created as relational beings, and that, that primary relationship, whether we've properly defined it or not as a, as a right relationship with our creator, the one whose image we bear, if we're not in right relationship with our creator, something will always be missing. I feel like I'm talking to the ones online maybe instead of some of you here. But I don't know. But if we're not in a right relationship with the one that created us, something will always be missing. There will always be an emptiness. We will never feel complete. There will always be a longing in our hearts for what's missing. What makes hell hell, or part of what makes hell hell, is to never again be in the presence of the glory of the Lord. What makes heaven heaven is to be glorified, to having our salvation complete, right? Being in his presence forever and ever. Verse 10, it says, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. And that word believed at the end of that sentence is a super important one. Uh, I'm not going to try to say the Greek word or pretend that I know Greek. But what I do know is the word that's translated there as believed is also translated in our Bibles as faith. It's also translated as trust. The same word is translated in those three words. Faith, trust, and belief. God bless you. Um, we know from the scriptures, I should have had this be a growth group question. Maybe I did. What must I do to be saved? That's an interesting question to ask Christians. You know, Paul and Silas, Paul and Silvanus, answered the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household, they said to him, and it was true. We see that they got baptized. But then we read in the scriptures, believe and be baptized, believe and repent. So, interesting study. But we know from the scriptures that salvation requires belief. Again, not that Jesus came, but belief in Jesus. And, and that piece of it is part of your growth group questions. So I mentioned that we know that the Bible tells us that we must believe to be saved. Here are some verses for you note takers if you want to write that down. Um, those are some great places, that, particularly the Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That is a great place to take people when they are concerned about assurance of salvation or if they are truly saved. 
what must they do to be saved. But these passages tell us that we must believe, but again, what does believe mean? Placing our full faith and trust that Jesus is who he says he is, and that Jesus did what he said he did, and I'm believing in that for my salvation, that he died for my sins, that he took on my punishment and justified me before God, making me a new creation, like Saul of Tarsus. Brand new. Next week, chapter 2, he talks about the whole process of salvation. Um, justification, right? That at the moment of salvation, when we're forgiven, it's just as if I'd never sinned. New creation. But then that process happens, right? Paul talks about in the scriptures, I am saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. So next week in just like two verses, he talks about that justification, sanctification, that process of making us more like Jesus, and then glorification when we transition from this world to the next and we become perfect like him. So interesting um, passage for next week. Uh, verse 11 says, Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith and power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, therefore, we also pray always for you. Paul records his prayer for them so they'll know that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness in the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So three specific things that Paul prays for these guys. One, again, that God would count you worthy of this calling, that God would bless them according to his will, and number three, that the name of Jesus would be glorified in them, through them, and in Christ at his second coming. I'll leave that up there. So Paul's heart here is to comfort this church, particularly in this first chapter, to recognize their suffering, but also their faith, uh, their love, their strength, that God would continue to be glorified through their transformed lives, that they believe the gospel. So he's Lord, and it changes everything. So that God would continue to be glorified through that, through them being new creations. Lives completely changed because they believed the testimony that was shared in the second missionary journey of Paul. Again, church, I want to spend some time thinking about this week, talking about what it means to believe. If we say we've placed our belief, our faith, our trust in Jesus, what does that mean and what should that look like in our lives? It's a good stopping point. Let's pray. 
Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of this little church. Lord, we are so quick to whine and complain, or I am. I don't want to put that on anyone else. Lord, when we suffer in the, the smallest of ways, and we, we have a church here that is um, suffering, and Lord, all they're doing is glorifying you and, and growing closer to one another, becoming more reliant on one another, love um, growing toward everyone in this church and their faith, Lord, rather than doubt, rather than, rather than question or complain to you, Lord, somehow their faith grew in this. And Lord, we want that. We, we want to have an increased faith. Lord, that you would remove doubts. Lord, we, we don't necessarily embrace the pathway that we see scripturally to get there, but Lord, it's, it's for our benefit, it's for our good. The world sees how we respond. So Lord, it's our prayer that you would grow our faith, that you would supernaturally grow our love and our like for one another. And Lord, help us this week as we ponder and we discuss and we think about what it really means to believe in Jesus Christ when we say that. And, and what should our response be in the way that we live our lives? Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for Donna and the years that you've given her, particularly those that she shared with us. And we ask that you'd bless her, particularly on this day and in the days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.